Well, this morning we're looking, we're continuing in our series on the minor prophets, and um, this week we're talking about Joel, and it's interesting because Joel, we, we're going to learn a lot about the book this morning, but even the word Joel means Yahweh is God. Um, the, the whole little book, all three chapters, is about understanding, sort of living into in a very, very personal way what it means to actually believe that God is who he says he is. That God is God. Um, really significant events we'll read about. There's a locust plague. There's an incredible drought. Um, but whether it's the 21st century or somewhere 5th, 6th, 7th century, wherever you exist, um, Joel was probably written between uh, 7, 6, and 5 B.C. Um, in those centuries. But the message of Joel about this idea of really what does it mean to turn toward God uh, what does it mean to really know him what, at a, in a core way? Not just in your actions, but in a real way to turn towards God. That's as relevant then as it is now. So I'm going to read two passages of Scripture this morning for our sermon. One from Joel 2 and then one from John chapter 3. So let me read for us. Hear the word of the Lord. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. With fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. And then in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, you may not have noticed this week, you may not care, but I've, Apple released yet another iteration of their most favorite device, the little iPhone. You know, the iPhone 13. You know, I, um, you know, I remember there was actually a time when iPhones weren't normal. You know, do y'all, do y'all remember that? The iPhones weren't actually the only thing that matters. Um, but every single year they come out with a new iPhone and they tell you why it's just so much better, like incredibly so. Like it has these significant elements to it. And you just, if you'll just get this new phone, you're going to be so much happier with this new phone as opposed to your old iPhone 12. I mean, who has those anymore, right? The idea of repentance, okay, there are lots of different versions of repentance. And the name, the title of the sermon is Repentance 2.0. Because unless you're very intentional, you are currently operating on Repentance 2.0 or 12.0 or 40.0. Like there's all sorts of versions. And really what we need to understand is God's idea of what it means to turn toward him. What does it mean for us to actually turn toward God? And this is, I'm not just talking about people who right now they're like, oh, I'm thinking of these 10 things this week that I did are horrible and I need to, you know, quit doing those things. Yes, that, that, there's some truth there. But the, the bigger idea, and this is a question for every single person in this room, what does it mean for us right now sitting in here at 8989 Woodlands Parkway to turn toward God with our hearts, to, as, as Joel writes, to rend our hearts? 
you know, to, to move toward him. What does it really mean for us to live into repentance? And if you weren't here last week, that's okay. I'm glad you're here this week. But last week, we looked at Hosea, and he was married to Gomer, and Gomer God bless her, was an absolute train wreck. And you can go back and read about that if you want. She had a, she had a really, really tough time doing what the Lord was asking her to do and what Hosea was asking her to do. And God's response to Gomer and, and Hosea's response to Gomer was always and every time repeatedly, I have more for you. I want you, to, I want you to lean into what I have for you. But there is grace here for you. There is mercy here for you. But I, I want this for you. Because the idea is this, that anytime we think about the idea of repentance, one of the most important elements to understanding godly repentance is understanding that what God's intention is, is to provide a way toward him. His primary interest, and the church has failed at this in a lot of ways, God's primary interest in repentance is not for you to feel an incredible amount of guilt and shame and to struggle to believe that you're worthy of being loved at all. That's actually not the point of repentance. If you have children, you understand this. I don't want my children to think, before you know I love you, I need, to know, I need you to know just how much you've messed up. I really need you to live into the shame of your mistakes, and after I feel like you've suffered enough, then I'll love you. Why on earth would you think that God would approach you like that? But that's often the times, that's often how we think about how he approaches us. And yeah, kids, look, I was a teenager too. I know it feels like our parents actually act that way. That's not true. They cherish you. They love you. Um, but God, turning toward God has everything to do, not sort of part of it, everything to do with understanding God wants to provide a way toward him. He wants to provide a way toward him because rather than be in the valley of decision, which we'll read about, he wants to lead you into the valley of his presence. What does it mean to repent? Part of it means to understand that real godly repentance is grace-saturated repentance. In the Middle Ages, people would actually whip their backs repeatedly for a certain amount of sins. You know, they would confess that they had done something, and they would say, okay, you need to lash your back this many times, and it would bleed. And after they had suffered enough, then they could be loved. See, that's entirely opposite of the gospel. What the scriptures teach us is that the only one who will have scars of shame for eternity are Jesus. He will have scars on his hands, and the scars will be a reminder of the shame of the world and and your own struggles and your own frustrations and your own mistakes. That, That will be the only reminder. Everything else is redeemed and restored and renewed. Repentance, as God means it, is meant to lead us toward life. It's meant to lead us towards something really significant and beautiful. God is inviting us into a grace-saturated repentance. You know, in the first book of the Bible in Genesis, you read about Adam and Eve, and they're in the garden. And God says, look, you can have anything from the tree you want. You can have it all. I just don't want you to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you do, you will surely die. And the reason God did that wasn't because he was like, so that's like, you know, my vintage tree and that's really got some special stuff on it and only for special occasions. That is not why God said don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The reason he said do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is because by eating of that tree, Adam and Eve decided I will be the one who determines what is good and evil. If I say it's good, it's good. If I say it's bad, it's bad. Let me ask you how that works with three-year-olds. That's not how the world is. God tells us what's good. Even when our hearts that are deceitful tell us otherwise, God says, trust me, my ways will lead to life. 
not to death. Trust my ways. Yeah, but my heart says no. I know. Repent. Turn towards my ways above your own ways. Lean into my grace-saturated call for turning towards me, or the Greek word metanoia, a change of mind. Change your knowledge. Begin to know my ways lead to life. Okay, so three ideas for us to consider this morning. First, we're going to look at the story of Joel and the people, because I know probably not many of you read the book of Joel this year. It's only three chapters. It's actually pretty short, Um, but I I want us to know what Joel is about as one of the minor prophets. Second, we're going to look more closely at the idea of repentance from a biblical perspective versus version 2.0 or 3.0 or 4.0, whatever you've heard in other churches. I don't know what version that is. If it's not version 1.0, I don't care about it. It's not what God has for you or whatever version you've come up with. You know, I've kind of figured out how I think I should approach God. Okay, fine. I just, as long as it's completely consistent with what God has said in the scriptures, you can call it whatever version you want, but I want it to be this version, God's version of repentance. So we're going to look at repentance, and then lastly, we're going to see Jesus in the minor prophet, Joel. So first, the story of Joel and the people. Again, little is actually known about the prophet himself, Joel. Unlike Isaiah and Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and some others, where we very clearly know of their conversations with people and their interactions, Joel is different. Even the name means Yahweh is God, and the time period is difficult. It's only three chapters, so there's not a lot of context there. Um, But we think it's somewhere between 5, 6, and 7 B.C., and there are reasons for that, primarily because there are two incredible disasters of epic proportion that take place, and those are recorded in history. So one of them, in Joel chapter 1, verse 4, we read these words, What the locust swarm has left, the great locust have eaten. What the great locust have left, the young locust have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. There are a lot of locusts, and they have eaten everything. They've destroyed everything, and that is recorded in history. So there was a locust, there was the swarm of these locusts and their children and their generations of locusts that ate the crops and destroyed their food source, destroyed all these things. The second massive event was a terrible drought in Joel chapter 1 verses 17 and following. We read there, the seeds are shriveled beneath the clods, the storehouses are in ruins, the granaries have been broken down for the grain is dried up. How the cattle moan. The herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. To you, Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness. We know something about that. The flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up and fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness. So those events kind of enable us to place Joel at least sometime during this part of the kingdom. These incredible droughts that were so difficult that they made people really ask the question of, who am I and who is God and what matters? In Joel chapter 1 verse 2 we read, hear this you elders, listen all you who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children, let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. So the point is, is that what's happening here only happened like in this, at this point one time. It was so severe. These locusts were so severe and this drought was so severe. Now, if you've ever seen drought or know anything about it, you know what it's like. We've had droughts in Texas. You remember, you, you, remember, you know, the things we've had. Um, my family and I went to the West this summer. One of my friends who's a pastor in Phoenix 
I was talking to him about the drought, and he said, it's wild, man. I don't remember the last time I felt rain on my face. I go, oh, like, you know, like six months? He goes, like two years. It hasn't rained on my house in over two years. So drought, it, that, that kind of begins to make you ask the question of, whoa, like, what are we going to do? In fact, I was reading in a National Parks website, they were considering giving licenses to hunters to kill off buffalo because they're going to drown. They're going to suffer. They're, gonna, they're not going to be able to eat. They're not going to be able to have water. You know, all of us at some point experience something that makes us stop and ask the question, okay, wait a minute. I no longer care about the iPhone 13 release. I no longer care about fill in the blank. Like you start asking the fundamental questions about who you are and who God is. And I don't know what it'll be, but something in your life will get your attention. And if you don't know anything, what I'm talking about getting your attention, God bless you, it's coming. Something will happen in your life that gets your attention and makes you ask the question, who is God? Does he matter? Who am I? Where do I go with this suffering? Bigger questions, more significant questions, questions that things like people who love you, and they do, who say, don't worry, it'll be okay, this, you know, so you're going to be all right, don't, don't worry. You're like, okay, I hope that's true, but right now in this moment, I need God to be real, I need this to be real, or I need to find something that is real. God, who are you? Does my life matter? Does God matter? What's it all about? The book of Joel is actually calling the people of God in the midst of that kind of suffering to do this. Turn towards me. In that moment, turn towards me. Begin to make your way towards who I am. Joel chapter 2 verse 27 says this, then you will know that I am I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other, and never again will my people be shamed. God is inviting us, when we ask those hard questions, to think to ourselves, okay, can I know that the Lord is God? Is there any other? Well, you know, to answer that question, the second question, is there anything else you can worship? Of course there is. And if you worship it, you'll, you'll discover how insufficient it can be. Now, I know this is hard to understand for some of you just because of different life experiences, but most of us in this room can tell you there are things we have really counted on and thought were absolutely central that exploded in our face. Or something we thought was so significant that mattered so much and we put so much effort into it and then it came and it went and we went, okay, well, that's not enough. And I don't know what it'll be for you, but we all worship something. You know, maybe if you're in college right now, life is, I don't know, doesn't feel much easier after college to me. If you're in fifth grade right now, as fun as that is, seventh grade, you're going to need Jesus there too. Guess what? In retirement, you still need Jesus. Ask my brothers and sisters who are retired in this room. There's never a moment in your life where the thing that you worship is an absolutely central to giving you a hope that can answer these questions of, who is God? Who am I? What do I do in the midst of this disaster? God says, my desire for you in turning towards me would be that this would be true of your heart. That you would know that I am the Lord your God. Because when you do, you're going to tap into life. You're going to tap into goodness. See, the idea of repentance is not to be ashamed when you discover that you need to repent. Although there may be things that have happened that you say, okay, I'm ashamed of that. The point of repentance is to say, what do I know is really Lord over my life right now? Like, what's the most important thing, and how is it serving me? God, God is inviting the people to look for something more. Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 says this, Repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is near. What he's not saying is, you know, throw away your cigarettes and put away all that extra wine and, you know, get yourself cleaned up because the kingdom of God's about to arrive. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, listen, repent, turn towards me, look at me, because the kingdom of heaven is near. That's Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. And then in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, what does he do? He calls his disciples. Repent, turn towards me. I'm calling you into following, into revealing my kingdom. There's something about repentance that's critical for us to understand as followers of Christ. Repentance means to turn away from something and to turn toward Christ. The question for us each to ask as we look at this idea of repentance here in Joel is, what am I looking to to make me happy? How about this? What are you looking to to make you miserable? You ever find yourself in a really bad place, in a bad mood, you're struggling that day, and you're like, wow, I just had this, 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 this happen, and I just have nothing left for, any, nothing left for anybody else. Look, we get it. You're tired. We do. But there's something in the part of that experience besides exhaustion that's saying, if things go a certain way, I'm able to be nicer. If the world does as I say, then I can be a nice person. If the world doesn't do as I say, I can be mean and I can be angry or I can be vindictive or whatever it is. God is actually calling us in the moment when we discover our hearts doing that. And that happens to me like two to eight times a week or so, you know, where I come home and I'm tired and I maybe I have an excuse to be grumpy or whatever it is. In that moment when you discover it, repentance looks like saying, God, I am miserable right now. Teach me your way of grace. Show me how to tap into your spirit by asking for your presence so that I can find my strength in something else then other than how my checklist is going. You know, if you think about the idea of repentance, it's hard not to think about our kids. I remember when I was little, I would go to my parents and they would say, you know, I would do something and then they would come to me and they would say, you know, Brad, you did this thing and we need you to say you're sorry. And sometimes I would do this, sorry. And they were like, not exactly what we had in mind. I'd say, okay, I'm really sorry. They're like, okay. You know, what's being asked for there is something connected to the action, a heart motive. What's your heart motive in turning towards the Lord? What's your heart motive in repentance? Here's the motive God wants to give you, so that you know that I'm Lord and so that I can bless you, so that I can be present with you, so that I can encourage you, so I can sustain you. So if we repent right, does life get a lot easier? Not really. But what begins to happen is you begin to calibrate to the truth of God's love for you instead of calibrating to whatever narrative has become primary in your life in that moment over here. God is a much better God, one who is always gracious, one who is always merciful, one who receives us and invites us into his kingdom. Okay, so, book of Joel, we've got the people of God, there's been two incredible tragedies We have a drought that's taken place. We have locusts that have destroyed the crops. And then we come to this idea of actually what is repentance. So what is repentance? It's a change of heart that leads to a change of practice. A change of heart that leads to a change of practice. Um, There's a difference between acknowledging who God is and actually starting to follow him. What if you're just in the first part of that equation? What if you're just in a place where you're thinking to yourself, you know what, I think God might be real. Do you know that's an evidence of the Holy Spirit? That's a work of God in you. And God is gracious to us. And he watches over his people as they turn towards him.
But there's a difference between acknowledging him and actually knowing him. You know, most people go through some search for God. Most people will acknowledge, and this may, you know, if you haven't thought about this, think about it for a second. Most people will acknowledge that they are actually not the center of the universe, right? You know, if everybody in this world believes that, the, that all of their desires are the most important thing in the room, if everybody believes that, we have a very confusing experience ahead of us. So what are we all acknowledging in that moment? We're all acknowledging in that moment that there is something beyond us. We have a God who watches over us, a God who protects us, a God who creates all things, a God who has made and cares for every person that has ever existed, a God who knows the motives of the heart and confronts them and says, I have more for you. There's a difference between acknowledging God and knowing him. You know one of the proofs of this? What happens to Jesus um, whenever he's tempted? One of the things that happens to him is Satan tempts him. Do you think Satan has any question about who Jesus is at all? Of course not. He knows exactly who Jesus is. Is it enough to simply know who Jesus is? The demons know who he is. Those who hate who Jesus is know who he is. It's not enough just to know who he is. What is God actually inviting us into? He's inviting us into a relationship where we experience his grace and his forgiveness and renewal. There's something beyond who we are. We're not the center of the universe. But God calls us to engage with the reality that to know the facts of who he is and to allow that to begin to shape our hearts. There's something beyond. It's kind of like the SpaceX launch. Did you watch any of that? I didn't, but I saw pictures of it. It was pretty cool of the first like civilian people, you know, civilians who were taken up into outer space and were able to kind of, not outer space, I guess in orbit and look around and kind of go through the experience. Why are we doing that? Because we want to explore. Because there's something beyond us. Let me ask you that question this morning. Do you really believe there's something beyond you? And if so, who is it and what do they want with you? The God of the scriptures is saying there's a God beyond you and he cherishes you, and he loves you. When you read Joel, you see he's speaking to a people who are calling him back to remember who God is. Joel chapter 1 says, Has not the food been cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of God. They're being called to remember. They're not just being introduced to God. They're saying, remember who he is. In other words, remember how we did our confession of sin? They have forgotten who God is. What's God's response when we forget him? Joel chapter 2, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents to send calamity. God continues to provide a way out. This morning, if you're thinking about your relationship with Jesus, whether you're just kind of hacking into it, or if you've been following Jesus a long time, or if you've kind of gotten dry in your faith, God's response to you this morning is this. Rend your heart, not your garments. I'm not interested in you impressing me with your actions. Don't just, you know, prove to me. I want you to rend your heart to me. The people are being reminded that the God they know is a good God. He is worthy to be trusted. He's worthy to be trusted. He's worthy to hope in. You know, when I was little, I remember... Um, because my mother found this old videotape of my brother and I. And the tape looks like this. All of a sudden, it's, it's black and white. You remember, you, a lot of you don't remember this, but 
those little home video cameras that had like reels. Remember how cool those were? They're very cool now, you know, vintage, whatever. The camera, we were watching it on the projector because, you know, you couldn't connect that to your TV. It's ludicrous. Um, so, you know, we connected to a projector and we're watching it and all of a sudden the tape begins to roll and it flutters. And all of a sudden you see just my nose and my eyes. And I'm about four years old or something. And then it, all of a sudden it goes sideways and then you see my brother's crib and these two little beady eyes looking over the top. And it's nighttime and mom and dad are not around. So I'm up, I'm four, three and a half, something like that. I have figured out how to turn on a video camera and I'm filming myself and my brother. And then the camera kind of goes dark and then all of a sudden it's light again. And what you see is a lot of this. My brother and I bouncing on the bed and then, you know, you're just waiting for my parents to come in, right? Oh no, this goes on. I crawl back out of the bed and then I go put the camera away and then we find it. Now, I don't remember if my mom ever asked me about that because we all seemed to be surprised by it when we saw it. But I'm guessing at four years old, if my parents would have said, did you get up in the middle of the night and play with that camera? I would have said, no, why? Because I would have been in trouble. No, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do that. I knew that if I did that, there was going to be a deep punishment, you know, as much as a four-year-old can. And that's okay. Sometimes there's consequences to our actions. But when you think about turning towards God, understand this. His interest in you turning towards him is not punitive. His interest in you turning towards him is that you would rend your heart to him. Listen to um, Joel chapter 3 verse 14. It says this, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near. In the valley of decision, the sun and moon will be darkened and the stars will no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem and earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. How does God respond when we find ourselves in a valley of decision? A valley of decision that looks like this. The sun and the moon is darkened. The stars no longer shine. The Lord roars from Zion. Have you ever been in a place where it feels like it's so tough that the sun has set, the moon has darkened, and the stars have diminished, and there's nothing but darkness around you? That's called the valley of decision in the Bible. And when you get there, when you find yourself in the valley of decision, what are we to do? The Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. When you are in the valley of decision, where do you turn? Will you stay in the darkness or will you begin to turn towards the Lord? And what does it even mean to turn towards the Lord? To answer that question, I'm going to tell you a very quick story. We're almost done here. What does it mean to be in the valley of decision and to turn toward the Lord? In John chapter 3, you remember we read verses 16 to 18. What is happening with John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18? Do you remember? Jesus is engaging with a Pharisee. Now, this is a guy who knows the Bible. He knows the Scriptures. He understands um, what's significant. And this Pharisee looks at Jesus and he asks the question, um, what, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus looks at him and he says, to be saved, you need to be born again. 
The Pharisee also says this. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who comes from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And he's like, well, how can I be born again? What does it mean to be born again? And Jesus answers him with what we read in John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. That Jesus comes to save us, not to condemn us. If you want to know God's primary motive for you this morning, for anyone in this room, it is that we would understand that he does not come to condemn us. He comes to be gracious to us. That he's the one who suffers for our sakes. That he welcomes all who will put their trust in him. In other words, repent and to be kind to them. Because every single person in this room Whether you're a Christian or not, God is calling us to enter into the experience of repentance. And, you know, initial repentance happens for everyone when we confess Jesus as the Savior of the world, as God. But it's also a continual aspect. Every single person continues to go through the process of repentance. A continual act of trusting in the Lord as our Savior, the one that we look to above all other things. If you want to know the point of what Joel is saying to to God's people this morning, it's this. There's a way out. Even if you're in the valley of decision, if you're in a place where the sun is darkened, the stars have darkened, and the moon is darkened, and you are completely confused, God wants to invite you to turn towards him and find life. That thing, that calling, that's what we mean when we say the word gospel. That we trust in Jesus above all other things and we look to him as our only hope and salvation. You know, this week as you go about your business, my hope for you is that you consider God's love for you above all else. That when you think about turning towards him, though your heart, whether it's repentance 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, or whatever it is, might be telling you, in order for God to love me, I've got to do these five things that you say, no, I'm going to believe in this first version, God's version of repentance, that says, as I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and to purify me from all unrighteousness, to be with me. Jesus to us leaves these words, peace I give to you. My prayer for you this morning is that as you think about turning towards God, that you experience his peace. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for your promises and your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness to us above all other things. We ask that you would watch over and protect us as your people, that we would turn towards you in all things because you truly are God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.